0: With your host, Andrew Donaldson,
2: this is Heard Tell. Hi, welcome back to Heard Tell. Okay, he's back. It's just you didn't see the first time he was on here because we had a technology failure. So we're going to do it again, but that means I get to talk to him a second time. Smart guy, sharp guy, excited to see him. He's one of these bow tie people too, so that's always exciting to see how he shows up dressed. Ethan Brown, my friend, how are you, sir? I'm good. Thank you for having me again. Yeah, I'm thrilled to have you back. Um, we're going to have you back again, except we're going to mean to this time. Uh, (laughs) you were writing about the inflation reduction act. Look, we're used to these Omnibus bills. We're used to, they just call it whatever they want to. And then we jam in whatever they wanted to pass anyway. Right. We've gotten used to this sort of thing. You took the angle though, as they were talking about, this thing was going to be great for the environment. Now the environment was what kind of really held up build back better. And then it was kind of a piece of the build back mansion, which turned into the inflation reduction act. So the environmental portion of this has always been contentious. What actually got in this bill and is it actually going to do anything for the environment?
0: So I think it depends on what your political philosophy is as to whether you might like the environmental provisions or not, because the approach the bill took is just investing a lot of government money into a lot of climate priorities. So you can... Do the math do the economics and see that these investments would have X effect on different clean energy industries clean transportation agriculture etc, and see that there should be a drop in emissions that said, you could question whether or not that's the right approach there are obviously other approaches to try to get to the same result so I tend to come at it from a perspective of I just want to see this get done. I tend to care a little less about how it gets done. But the the thing that I wrote about in my piece about the Inflation Reduction Act, which was in Real Clear Energy about a month ago, is I was concerned that they kept saying that there would be a 40% reduction in carbon emissions. And that's sort of true, but there's a lot more nuance to that statement. And I felt like it was coming off a little misleading. So happy to talk about that more as well.
2: Yeah. And start big picture with it for us, because what happens every time we talk climate, people want to throw a number with it. Now, this isn't unusual because they do the same thing with, you know, funding for roads or school funding, or whatever. It feels like sometimes they just pick a number, then they get this data to say whatever number they want, because we all know that statistics can say whatever you want them to say. That 40% number, where does it come from? Does it actually mean anything? Because this one, especially when you start looking into it and how they got the number, this one looks like they pretty much kind of picked this one out of thin air a little bit.
0: So it does come from something. They're saying that there would be a 40% reduction in carbon emissions by 2030 from 2005 levels. And people may not know this, but America's carbon emissions actually peaked in 2005. They've come down about 16% since then, and based on current trends, they were expected to come down another, uh, down to like 26, or I believe 24% by 2030, just based on current policies, current behavior of the free market. So is going from 24% to 40% a big deal? Sure, but it's not all because of the Inflation Reduction Act. We're going back in time to set our initial target or initial starting point, rather. And we are ignoring the fact that emissions have come down since then and would have continued to come down since then. So I would just caution against policymakers taking full credit if we drop emissions by 40%, because even though the Inflation Reduction Act would contribute, it wouldn't do it all by itself.
2: Yeah, Ethan Brown joining us. You said they peaked out. Was that purposeful policy? Was it a little bit of inertia? Was it just technology and innovation kind of catching up as through the due course of events? Give me a little bit of a breakdown of that, because that number is probably going to surprise people because we, you know, we've gotten accustomed to climate alarmism as opposed to climate policy discussion, like a lot of things. Right. So that seems like a good piece of news somebody should be talking about, but you don't hear anybody talking about it. So break down that number why we got there, why it peaked out, and why in the world nobody's discussing it, especially people that want and care about that issue.
0: It's a great piece of news. It's something that makes me very excited, and I wish more people knew it. I think that there is certainly a political piece. I don't know how big that piece is uh, because 2005 was a ways back, but certainly we have seen a lot of other climate bills get done over the course of time. Maybe they're not termed climate bills, but then again, neither was the Inflation Reduction Act. They put inflation as the headline. So there are bills that have been working, taking some small steps toward emissions cuts, but I think a lot of it, came on the technology side and on the economic side. Um, The cost of photovoltaic solar has dropped by 85% in the last decade. The cost of onshore wind has dropped by 55% in the last decade. And the cost of batteries for electric vehicles has dropped by 85% in the last decade. Meanwhile, consumption of coal dropped by 58% in the United States from uh, 2005 to 2019. So we're seeing that a lot of these cleaner technologies are just becoming more economically viable on their own. That's a very exciting prospect for someone who cares about the climate or someone who just cares about cheap and reliable energy. So, yeah, I think there's a combination of factors at play, but certainly the technological piece has been one of the more exciting ones, in my view.
2: Yeah, Ethan Brown joining us. Uh, That's the technology piece. We're talking about the political piece. Let's talk about the emotional piece. You talked about it in your piece in Real Clear Energy. Again, we're going to link to it. Make sure you read the whole thing yourself. He's got a bunch of links in here, too. So read the links because he actually backs a lot of this up with data. And there's a lot of good perspective in here. Read it. Make up your own mind. You talk about the emotional part of this. This is a very emotional issue, probably too emotional for most people. People come at it emotionally before they get to the data, before they get to the science, before they get to the policy arguments of it. Talk about something like saying, well, we're going to do this 40% by 2030. Of course, for years and years, everything was 2020. We're past 2020 now. They pick a date, they pick a percentage, and then it's like, oh, we're going to do this. But does that actually help? Because you talk about things like if you start going towards alarmism, if you start going towards doom and gloom, there's actual scientific data, not from the climate side, from the psychology side, that people start turning this stuff off and don't want to pay attention to it and don't want to listen to it.
0: If people feel a certain level of fear or guilt about an issue, that can prompt them to act. But once it goes over a certain amount, then it just turns them off completely. Uh, I did a dual degree in college with environmental analysis and policy and film and television. Film and TV was in the College of Communication, and that was something that we learned in our very first communication class. So there's a really fine line you have to walk when you're trying to communicate an issue. I also find that people tend to be a lot more excited to hop on a moving train than a train that's standing still in terms of projects to work on, companies to go be a part of, and I think policy as well. So if we're saying 40% by 2030, if we're saying this is the first major climate bill to get done, I think that's a lot more overwhelming than exciting to hear. And so I worry that by framing it like the Inflation Reduction Act is step one it's just going to turn people off, it's going to make people feel like we're too late, or what have you. Whereas if we're talking about we've been making progress for decades, and this is the latest step, then I think people might be a lot more excited. I was also concerned because for people who might not be as big a fan of the Inflation Reduction Act, be it political reasons or otherwise, it's kind of it excludes them a little bit. There are a lot of different ways to approach climate. This is not the only way to do it. And if we're saying this is the first and only big climate bill, then it might take people out of the climate conversation. Whereas I'd much rather people come in and say that wasn't the approach I would like, this is the approach I would like, and start to have those conversations and maybe have a more bipartisan approach next time around.
2: Ethan Brown joining us. This is fascinating because we learned this during COVID. It became readily apparent that scientists don't know how to talk to the general public. They speak two different languages. And it became really apparent that government bureaucratic scientists really, really don't know how to speak to the public. How much of the problems with communicating on things like the environment, like climate change, like just conservation, if you're more of the conservative and you prefer that nomenclature, how much of this is just a language and communication problem? Because when you do things like this, you do the alarmism, you're picking stats out that are you know, not inaccurate, but you're kind of floating them to get a certain number to look good on the PowerPoint slide. That's all communication problems. That builds distrust. That builds people not wanting to listen. That builds, like you said, with the alarmism, people wanting to turn it off. How much of this is a communication problem before you even get to the policy parts of it?
0: There's a huge communication problem, and I would not put it all on scientists. I think there's been issues from politicians, from journalists, from even folks in the climate communication world that I'm in. And it's challenging because this is a very serious issue. There are high stakes here. We're looking at a lot of important uh, ecosystems on our planet, we're looking at extreme weather events. We saw September have some really bad hurricanes, some storm surges, a historic heat wave here in California. So there's a lot of high stakes here, and I think that can kind of ramp up some of the pressure to just feel alarmed. At the same time, we're not all going extinct on Thursday. We know that there are ways to address this issue and there are ways to address it that can also improve the economy, improve our health, improve justice, improve national security, kind of take an approach that helps a lot more issues than we care about than just say, throw everything out. We need to get the climate done. We can kind of do everything. So I think there's a lot to be... Concerned about, but also a lot to be excited about. And when I'm communicating, I try to put an emphasis on those solution options just as much as I do on the problems. I hope that more people can do that because ultimately I think that's where we might get more engagement and more productive conversations.
2: Yeah, Ethan Brown joining us. You give an example of how not to communicate this stuff. Uh, Now, to be fair here, every politician has done this, but in this particular case, it was President Biden saying, This is a quote. Every single Republican, every single one voted against tackling the climate crisis. And you said this is, of course, false because there's only two options, no climate action or the Inflation Reduction Act. We just saw it this week with uh, the continuing resolution for national funding. And if you voted against that, then you voted against disaster relief for the hurricane we just had. We've done this with the military for decades. If you don't vote for this massive bloated DOD bill, you hate the troops. If you don't vote for school funding, you hate the kids on and on and on. We see this tactic all the time, but we already mentioned it. When you're talking about something that a lot of people are skeptical of, whatever you think, there's just skepticism about the climate and climate change. And there's a lot of just things folks don't understand. And a lot of the science don't understand either. When you start putting black and white stuff like that, that is not helpful.
0: It's not. And to your point, it is a complicated topic. To wrap our heads around. It's something that is challenging for scientists to communicate to the public. And very often, scientists don't know what the public doesn't know. Uh, climate change is absolutely, it's a climate science is a new field of science, but that doesn't mean that we're not certain about a certain number of things. We can see exactly how the greenhouse effect works down to the carbon dioxide atoms where when infrared radiation hits it, the oxygen atom in the middle wobbles and the carbon atoms that creates some energy and then those atoms bump into each other and contain energy. And then we see a warming effect on the planet and we can see how that plays out in various natural disasters. There's stuff that is very certain, but that's challenging to communicate clearly. That's challenging for everyone to wrap their heads around. And then once we go to make policy about it, it's another challenge because The science and the policy starts to get intertangled. Then you have facts and opinions getting intertangled. And suddenly the whole thing just raises skepticism. And there are parts of this that are facts and parts of this that are opinions. In my work, I always try to separate the two. But certainly that is a challenge for any communicator.
2: Yeah, Ethan Brown joining us uh, from the sweaty penguin, which we'll talk more about a minute ago. I love that name so much. Let's be honest here. I, look, I've I've modulated on this a little bit. I, I don't think, you know, climate change is a scam, as some of the more hardcore people do. But I think there's scammers that take advantage of climate change. Climate change is a big industry. You're in it. You know, you make a living talking about this stuff. It is a business and an industry, even though there's a science part to it. Is there a responsibility for the folks in the climate uh, change area? Let me rephrase that is there a responsibility for the climate change sector and the activists and the people to maybe do a little bit more policing of their own? Because frankly, some of that skepticism, some of that uh, questioning, some of the climate stuff, they've brought that on themselves.
0: Absolutely. And I'll give you a little story. It was maybe a month or two ago, there was a article that came out in Scotland saying that 90% 90% of plankton in the Antarctic Ocean had disappeared. And a whole bunch of climate activists, communicators on TikTok and other social media ran with this story, did posts about it. It kind of went viral. And this was not anywhere close to the case. If 90% of Atlantic plankton were gone, we would have noticed by now we might be gone ourselves. That is the foundation of our marine ecosystems. And that just didn't happen. Uh, these communicators were also saying that it was due to climate change, but I went back and found the original report that said this was not peer reviewed and it was from a group that sells water filtration systems and they were saying it was not due to climate change, but it was due to pollution that I presume their water filtration systems could help fix. So. I've seen things like this happen before where I come in really hard, probably more than on anything else, to address climate communicators and say we need to do a better job because the facts of climate change are concerning enough in my view. There is absolutely no reason to exaggerate things, to make up statistics, to take things out of context. The facts are very much a concern, and I think that that's more than enough to get people on board, anything beyond that, and you just lose trust from people.
1: Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop.
2: Yeah, Ethan Brown joining us. Okay, but there's people that will still contest that. People can have honest opinions on this thing. Isn't a good way to do this, and I think this is something that we're having trouble with in media and politics and everything. We want to nationalize everything. We can't really do anything about the Inflation Reduction Act other than talk about it. We can't really do anything about you know a big conference in Switzerland where everybody has to take their private jets to it and have a big meeting about the environment, right? Should we be spending more time and effort, and by we, I mean everybody involved, because— If you talk to a conservative and you talk conservation where they live, they're going to be open to that. And the environmental and climate change folks, should they be talking a little more about local things, local level, municipal level, state level, things people can actually do like going out and cleaning up their communities, like going out and working, you know, some forestry volunteer stuff, you know, just some basic stuff of taking care of the environment as it's traditionally labeled, you know, the nature, outdoors, things like this. I, I think sometimes we get into the, the big picture stuff, we lose that there's a lot of that. And that would probably be an easier way to get into these things. And then you can discuss the bigger picture things.
0: Is there an effort to kind of do that? Is that something that you see as well as lacking here? I've definitely seen the environmental movement start to take steps in that direction. And I think I agree with you. That's a very good thing. It's a lot easier to care about something in your community than to think about globally something going on on the other side of the world and how our actions here can impact that. So yeah, the environmental movement, I believe, is starting to see that and starting to make some steps toward that. What I would hope that they do in doing that, which this I'm not sure is happening, there seems to be this idea of fighting for a cause and beating the opposition. And that's just silly to me everyone should care that they have clean air, clean water, and a healthy environment. I don't think anyone does not want that. And so that means you can bring anyone in on any of these issues, specifically local issues where people will see it in their own backyards. So if there's some dispute going on where a environmental group is thinking, all right, we just need to get 51% of the population on board, I would really caution against that. I think it's much more productive to get everyone on board, or at least as many people as possible, because then as you move to other issues and other issues, everyone's engaged, people are on the same page, and I think a lot more gets done, and then that can even be scaled up nationally when everyone cares and everyone's on board.
2: Yeah, I remember something my dad told me years ago. He's like, you know, winning by one vote isn't winning. That's making half the people mad. Um, so there's some good wisdom there. Okay, Ethan Brown joining us. Let's talk about Sweaty Penguin for a minute. I I love this. I love what you're doing, but I'll let you set it up. Tell people what it is. It's Boy, you got the branding down, so I can, you know, that's done. But tell people about, that's the sizzle. Tell people about the steak part of it, what you do with Sweaty Penguin.
0: The Sweaty Penguin is my podcast. It is a comedy climate podcast presented by PBS's National Climate Initiative, Peril and Promise. And our goal is to make climate change and environmental issues less overwhelming, less politicized and more fun. So we do two episodes a week. One of our episodes is called the deep dive because so we need a penguin pun and those we go into a specific environmental issue, we'll discuss what the problem is, how it affects the environment, economy, health, justice, etc. and then we'll talk about solutions and rather than giving a specific solution and advocating for it. We'll discuss a variety of them and discuss the pros and cons and kind of let you make up your mind. That first segment is also a comedy monologue inspired by a lot of the late night talk shows. And then in the second segment, we'll interview an expert. And we've had professors on from 15 countries and six continents to talk about their research and kind of give you a glimpse into what they're doing. The other episodes which come out on Wednesdays are called Tip of the Iceberg. Those are a shorter newsier segment. So I'll do uh, another late night style monologue talking about whatever the big climate news story of the week was, giving some context, kind of breaking down any miscommunications or factual inaccuracies or that kind of thing. And then in the second segment I'll take a question from an audience member and if you have any climate questions, please send them into us. We love answering those. So that's the sweaty penguin and we're Two and a half And a half years in, uh, we had our 100th deep dive about a month ago, uh, which was really exciting. So, definitely on the up and up here.
2: Yeah, Ethan Brown joining us. I like that you do here. People forget things like, you know, like Rush Limbaugh had the biggest conservative talk show of all time, he did tons of humor, like it was ingrained into what he did. Late Night, uh, has gotten more political, but they intro it with humor Saturday. Night Live's always been hit. how important is it when you have a really heavy topic like? the environment. You've got to have some levity in there just to give people, you know, some breathing room for one thing, because otherwise you just wear people out and their eyes start to glaze over. But also to give people kind of an entry and some levity into a heavy topic. It just kind of humanizes everything, doesn't it?
0: Absolutely. I ran both my high school and college satire publications, and that gave me a lot of insight into how comedy can be used to get people engaged in an issue, introduce people to an issue, bring in a larger audience on an issue. So I always had it in my head to kind of combine climate change and comedy, climate being something really overwhelming and depressing and confusing and comedy to make it a little more fun. I think people sometimes are confused how the two intersect, but I would encourage you to check out our podcast because that's I love to write comedy about some of these difficult topics. And I think that it makes it a lot more fun and a lot more interesting to learn about.
2: Hey, if the uh, onion can file a brief in a Supreme Court case that gets rave reviews from everybody, why can't the sweaty penguin go live from the uh, universal function in Switzerland or wherever those sort of things are? Never know, man. Dream big. You might see what happens, right? That would be cool. Yep. Yeah. Ethan Brown. Uh, you told us about it. Let folks know where they can find it, where they can follow you, the sweaty penguin, the other work and the writing you do. This piece that we've been talking about is in Real Clear Energy. We will link to it. We will also link to the sweaty penguin so you can subscribe and download that. But let folks know where they can find it until they see you again back on Her Tell my friend.
0: Thanks for having me, Andrew. You can find The Sweaty Penguin on anywhere you get your podcasts, as well as thesweatypenguin.com and pbs.org slash promise. You can find us on any social media. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash where You can get merch, bonus content, and a lot more. You can also submit questions to Tip of the Iceberg. Like I said, we love answering people's questions, and so I hope to hear from you there. And if you want to find me personally, I'm on Twitter at EthanBrown5151.
2: Yep, where he talks about all kinds of interesting things like trying to distinguish what's on his arm. Is it a bug or a piece of chocolate? And I'll let you find that on his Twitter feed for your own. Ethan Brown, uh, good stuff. Enjoy the conversation. We'll have you back because we're going to be talking about this, I think, probably for the rest of our lives, but at least for the foreseeable future. Good stuff, my friend. We'll talk again real soon.
0: Sounds great. Looking forward to it. Appreciate it, sir. Thank you.
1: Now let me see you.